Hi, this is William Ramsey. I just wanted to repost this excellent interview I did with Stuart Smith about his superb book, The Devil's Disciple. The introduction will be audio of Otto Scorseni talking to a journalist where he states that he was approached by pro-Castro forces and anti-Castro forces, and he says at the end, everybody wants me. Enjoy the show. You must have been approached since the war by other nations uh to indulge in military activities of the kind you indulged in during the war. Is this correct? Yes, that's has happened. Yes, exactly. And there is a lot of countries which are... Would you to... name some of the countries? Oh, I can name, for instance, United States of America. They have to... nearly the first one. Is that so? something, yes. What do they want you to do? Oh, some special work. You won't say exactly... Uh, I wouldn't say it. You don't talk about it. No. Please. Have you been approached by countries like... Cuba, for instance. Uh, I was not officially approached, but inofficially I was approached also. Uh, was this by Castro? Uh, it was first by Castro and now by the enemies of Castro. There's Everybody wants We are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, of a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is Stuart Smith. And I saw him on Netflix. I saw him on a documentary titled Europe's Most Dangerous Man, Otto Scorzeni in Spain. And so I was really fascinated by the subject and I'd heard a little bit about Scorzani's name just as my interest in World War II. But uh, Stuart's an expert on Scorzani. He wrote this book titled Otto Scorzani, The Devil's Disciple, published 2018. A terrific book with 42 five-star reviews. So it's very well received on Amazon. So people can go check that out. But Stuart's going to talk more about that. So Stuart Smith, are you there? I'm there. Yeah. Hello. Glad to be here. Glad yeah, great. That. Well, thanks yeah. for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your name, can you talk about your background and what led you to write this book, Otto Scorzeni, The Devil's Disciple? Sure, sure. Uh, an accident, really. I was uh, I, I, I studied history at university, modern history included, but not exclusively, so certainly not the end of the Second World War in any great detail. But then I became a journalist. I was a business journalist, a specialist. I edited a quite well-known marketing magazine in the UK. And after I left that job as editor, done it for 20 years, I uh, set up my own blog, became a consultant. And one day when I was working with uh, another of my uh, colleagues from the same magazine, an earlier editor, uh, we, were, we were putting stuff together and a submission came in. And it was a strange submission. It mentioned this character called Otto Scotzeni, who I'd barely heard of. And I had a pretty good outline knowledge of what happened in the Second World War, who had apparently rescued Mussolini. This man was a former, very well-known creative director in a UK advertising agency. And um, what he was trying to do, I suppose, was, um, it, it came across as slightly pretentious, but interesting, was to say that there are different kinds of creative. You don't just have to be good at art uh, or film. And uh, in his sphere, Otto Scorzeni was highly creative because he'd thought of the vertical axis, as he called it, when rescuing Mussolini from imprisonment in the middle of Italy in 1943, uh, some of which was true. And I thought, is this, well, let's have a look at that. That's, that's almost too good to be true. Was he such a so-called creative genius in military terms? And uh, when I looked at it, I, I discovered he had indeed participated in the expedition to uh, release Mussolini from captivity, but that um, there was an awful lot of controversy about him. A lot of people, including those who served with him, said he hadn't. He was there, but someone else actually dreamed up the plan to rescue Mussolini. 
And then I started looking at the rest of Otto Scorzi in his career. And the one consistent thing about it is, is, is he's never without controversy. Everything he did attracted attention. Some positive, not always, though. And there are a number of events in his military career, which I then touched on. And then I discovered that he'd, uh, he'd had rather a good war, ultimately, because he'd escaped justice. And we can go into what justice might have been later. And uh, lived the, uh, what you might call the life of Riley, which did include right. a, a, <laughs> it did include a mansion house in, in, in Ireland eventually, but mostly it was in Spain between 1950 and 1975 when he died in his bed. Right. I mean, he's just an incredible character, like how he skirted being involved in so many things, so many operations, how he skirted justice for all those years. Uh, people say maybe he wasn't as smart, but... He, I mean, reading your book, he got through so many things. So maybe for people who haven't heard the name Otto Scorsini, who is his, what's his background and how did he become involved in World War II? All right. Well, up to the early part of 1943, you might say it was a study in failure in a way. He was born in 1908 in Vienna in the sort of uh, what you might call the crepuscular radiance of a fading empire. 54 million people, uh, to middle-class parents. His father was a successful master builder who'd also been, uh, he'd fought in the First World War, or at least he was in the uh, Army Reserve. Uh, and his, his mother also came from a military family. The Scotseni name, in fact, comes from something like Scotsin, which is a, a place in uh, Pomerania, in, in, in Prussia, in fact, but centuries back. So they had eventually settled in Austria, but they were established folk. He had a, he had a, um, an elder brother who, uh, who was eight years older than him, born in 1900, uh, Alfred, who was an engineer. And uh, his, his, his father was, uh, like Scorsini, fascinated about technology. But we'll come to that in a, a little while. This sort of fairly idyllic middle-class life was shattered very soon by the First World War. Austria-Hungary um, uh, soon, well, not soon, but it did collapse within three or four years. The empire imploded on itself. And what was left after 1919, this Treaty of Saint-Germain, which is appended to the Treaty of Versailles, imposed on the beaten central powers by the Allies, the Western Allies, um, was uh, a very truncated country with lots of unemployed middle-class folk, industries that didn't work, either the factories were on the Austrian side or the, the raw materials on the Austrian side. What had been a free trade area was now anything but. And the Scotsani family, together with most middle-class Austrians of the time, found it very, very hard. In fact, there's a, there's a quote somewhere in uh, one of the books about uh, Scotsani, he said that he uh, that he, he didn't hadn't didn't taste butter until about 1923. It was that bad, and you know we've heard all the proverbial stories about wheelbarrows in the Ruhr in 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 uh, 1923 when the French army occupied the West Bank of Germany. Well, it's pretty much the same in in Hungary. You know what uh, would have bought a small house in 1913, 1914 would just about buy a postage stamp in 1923. It was that bad. Right. So he had grown up kind of in penury. He had said his dad told him, you know, this is actually might be good for you to grow that way. So they're very I, my sense was the family was really concerned about 
their financial status. And so was he. So he's trying to make a living. I think he started, you said he started a business doing uh, gutters or something up until the war started. So how did he get involved? How did he get involved? I mean, as an Austrian, right? So um, how did he get involved in the whole Third Reich uh, war effort? Right. It's, it's, it's quite a jump. He wasn't a political young man, but he was a sports to his father clearly had some resources he kept back because he was able to send him to university, Vienna Tech University, where he studied engineering. But what he actually did with most of his time, although he did pass his exams eventually, was, well, he was, um, he was a massive young man. He was about six foot four, uh, very, very athletic, as you can see from the photographs of him. And uh, what he mostly spent his time doing was drinking and sword play. And what I mean by sword play is there was a very established institution. It wasn't unusual in, in Austrian or German um, universities at the time. Of these, uh, what you might call very mannered combat duels with sabers, they were called Schlager, the sword. Uh, and the, 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 the concept was called Mensur. It originated in the post-Napoleonic War period, and it was a sort of a ritual, a rite of passage of certain, not everyone in university did it, but certain macho young men. And the, the idea with this, and it's important for later on here, I think, the idea of this was to show your unflinching bravery, because although the rest of your body was protected, your face wasn't. And almost anyone who was anyone with one of these swords had the scars to prove it. And Otto Skorzeny was particularly, well, he was insanely brave, as, 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 as will become apparent in, in, in uh, various episodes, but he was certainly showed it at university. He fought an unusual, most, most students might have fought, I don't know, three or four, depending how long their nerve held. But he fought, uh, I think it was 14 of these bouts over three years or so. And in 1928, after he'd been at the... Um, the uh, Vienna Technical University for two years, um, he got unlucky and he was sliced down the left side of his face all the way to the jaw, which is how he got one of his nicknames, uh, among the Americans anyway, of Scarface. Uh, this, this, was, this was sealed up without any anesthetic. It was just done with carbolic. Right, they just stitch it up right there. Take, get some stitch it up just there. Yeah, and you, you went home, and then you came back. For, well, if you were him, you came back for another one. <laughs> he fought another four. And there is a picture of him online. You can see it with the cut on his face, and they're wearing kind of like a guard for the neck, a metal guard. Right. It looked very rough. But, yeah, but it shows kind of his sensibility of being in a man's club. You're right, and it lays that groundwork with fearlessness and kind of bravado that he would do. He was a man, yeah with the athleticism to prove his point. But he liked to say later on, um, even though he was uh, kind of apolitical before he went to university, that the Sabre play, well, he, he taught him the, what he called the knowledge of pain, how to take it as well as give it. But he, he was also quite keen on this idea, almost chivalrous, chivalrous idea, that when you went for the enemy, you went straight for the head. You didn't waste time with the body. Decapitate your enemy. And, and, and this was one small idea, I think, behind his decapitation uh, missions later on when he, when he was doing military service. So it, it was something that, uh, a rite of passage, yes, but something that left a lasting impression on him. Right. So he's part of these men's club. He also likes the speed race. I think he was involved in kind of 
automobile racing too. So you kind of have that daring. And then how did he get involved in war effort? Okay, well, this is where we come to the politics. These um, these student clubs, dueling clubs, were in origin very right-wing anyway, and they've become more so with the disgruntlement after the First World War with Austria as a rump state. It seemed to be going nowhere. It's in the hands of coalitions who couldn't rule the country properly. And uh, the army, which was very small, had to rely on a large number of paramilitaries uh, the most famous parliamentary organization in the 1920s was the Heimswehr, the home force, really, that's what it meant. <clears throat> and these students were affiliated to that. So in their spare time, they could go out beating up gangs of communists. There was, there was virtual civil war in, um, in Austria in 1927, 1928. But a pattern began to develop and... and um, uh, um, Skoltseni moved towards the Nazi party. He was originally part of the Heimswehr, which, yes, was right-wing, but it wasn't affiliated to the Nazis in Germany. Um, in, the, in the early 1930s, when the Heimswehr leader made a fatal political mistake, he decided to join government and he dropped the essential stipulation for a lot of these paramilitary students, if you like, of what was called Anschluss, that meant, it was a very technical term, um, which meant simply that Austria would be joined with Germany. There's a great deal, I think this is quite an important point on why so many young Nazis felt justified in what they did in the early days anyway. There's a great deal of resentment after the Treaty of Versailles had imposed what was seen as a very skewed settlement on Europe. I mean, it talked about... Uh, self-determination, meaning that, you know, peoples of one language and one culture should fit together. But it seemed to be skewed so that Germans never, never, never won out. That was why Austria was so small, why Hungary was so small, because they were the beaten powers. The only way it, it became increasingly obvious that Austria had any kind of future was to join up with Germany again. And Adolf Hitler, from certainly 1930 onwards, seemed to be the future for a lot of these people. Now, then, the Nazi Party itself, uh, where, where the Heimswehr had uh, put aside Anschluss as a policy, the Nazi, and certainly the Austrian government didn't believe in it, uh, the Nazi Party adhered to it very fiercely, but it was banned. It was banned after essentially it assassinated Dolphus, the Austrian Chancellor, and so it was banned from 1934 onwards. Now, by that time, the 1932, uh, Scott had joined the Nazi Party. Uh, he thought it was dynamic. It had lots of easy solutions that appealed to him. And uh, in 1934, he joined the SS, the elite Nazi organization. I should say something here about what the SS meant in those days. It was a kind of, it was conceived by Himmler and Heydrich, uh, Reinhold Heydrich, uh, in, the, in the late 1920s, early 30s, as a sort of Praetorian guard around Hitler and his Gauleiters, but it was a lot more. And uh, there was a sort of separate organization in Austria, which uh, well, it was essentially a middle-class intelligence police organization, intelligence gathering. Uh, so 
it would be very much smaller than, say, the typical, well, certainly smaller than Nazi Party membership and much, much smaller than the uh, Nazi Party storm uh, troopers, the SA or brown shirts. Proverbially, the uh, SS was called, were called the black shirts, which was actually only true during the 1930s. They changed the uniform later. But uh, at the time, ease of distinction, that's what happened. So Scott Sony joined this elite organization and uh, in it, nearing the top, and he was top dog after 1936, was someone called Ernst Kaltenbrunner, a real brute. I mean, he was sort of six foot seven, even taller than Scorsini, even bigger, granite faced colossus. And the same was, scars, too, right? Same scars sorry? on his face. <laughs> and they're all from Austria. So Hitler, Kaltenbrunner. Getting the uh, Scorzeni, uh, all Austrians. Uh, yes, yeah, I haven't really mentioned another thing that's from Austria. Colton uh, Brunner was unusual for, for a lot of Nazis we might meet in this conversation. He was actually a lawyer by tradition. His, his, parent, his father was a lawyer, and I think his father's father. But um, he'd, he'd actually met uh, Scorzeni uh, socially. I, I think they knew each other. They probably met because they're at different universities and they were involved in these student duels. But Scorsini was certainly, he didn't, he liked to conceal this later because after all, Ernst Kaltenbrunner became the head of the uh, Nazi security apparatus, the RSHA eventually from 1943 onwards. And he was a war criminal, absolutely no doubt about that. And Scorsini liked to see himself as a sort of clean, apolitical soldier, though we might differ about that. So this idea of this relationship with Kaltenbrunner, his memoirs is very suppressed. It is mentioned. He doesn't completely show away from it, but you don't get the impression they were very close. But right. I mean, they all kind of distance after the war. They try to distance themselves from the bad guys. But there's a picture. I've seen a video of Hitler with the two huge guys, Kaltenbrunner and Skorzeny, walking in tandem. I don't know where it was from or what year it was, but it's really remarkable to see all those three guys together, considering what happened during World War II. Yeah, yeah. Well, the magic moment for Scott Senny, where he becomes a really committed, uh, useful pair of hands to the Nazis, is, is 1938 and the Angelus operation, where Hitler essentially stages a coup d'etat and overthrows the Austrian state. I mean, Scott Senny at that point, he's, he's, he's gone through university, he's got a degree, it doesn't add up to very much because there aren't many jobs, so he, he, he becomes a mechanic in a, in a, in a depot. Um, not many people have cars at that time, so it's a bit more prestigious than it is today, perhaps. But nevertheless, he then graduates to a, a, a scaffolding company, a building company, actually, but it specializes in scaffolding. And uh, he's, he's, a, he's a sharp practitioner because he, he marries the boss's daughter, uh, who's called Gretel Schreiber, and, and gets a share, eventually a major share in the business. And, and he continues in some way to be associated with it until 1945, when we shall, shall we say force majeure took over. But, um, but, but he, he uh, divorces this young woman who was, I think, only about 19 or 20 when he married her. And, and uh, after, after three years, and he marries someone else, an aspiring actress called Emmy Linhart. And we may hear her of her, um, you know, soon enough. So, he, so he's, he's, um, he's in the building trade, but in his spare time, what he's doing is he's, uh, he's participating in something called the uh, 
Deutsches Turnerbund, which is a, a gym club. And these were these gym clubs, athletics clubs in Austria, were below the radar in the sense that um, they were perfectly legal, but everyone knew they were actually operated by the Nazi party. So come the day when, when Hitler's threatening to invade, Skorzeny is, if you like, on the inner ring, and he's part of the crowd, although he denies it in his books. He's part of the crowd outside the chancellor's building calling for him to resign. And, and you know, it's a very threatening experience, a sort of ring of... Uh, he, he wasn't in uniform himself, I believe, but he was wearing a ski coat. But there were plenty of black shirts and brown shirts around. Uh, and he plays this uh, cameo role, which points the way to the future. He's uh, the chancellor at uh, around about midnight on the, I think it was the 13th of uh, March, 1938. He finally buckles to the pressure and he resigns. Carlton Broner's in there because he's unofficially head of the SS at the moment. He's part of the investment of the chancellery. Uh, but there's a problem because the president, who's called uh, uh, Miklas, uh, refuses to give in. And this could be very embarrassing for Hitler. You know, it's a half-cock coup d'etat. He doesn't really want to have to actually use the tanks assembled outside the armored vehicles and so on. He wants it to be a smooth, seemingly civilian affair where the, 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 the chancellor's just given up, the president's given up, and Hitler takes over. So what happens is, and we're not quite sure who gave the order, but I think indirectly Colton Brunner himself told Skorzeny because he happened to be around and he happened to have access because, as you said earlier, he was very much into motorsport, which was another Nazi-sponsored business. He had access to a car and a few of his, he and a few of his mates raced to the residency of the, um, of, of the, of the president and effectively burst in. And you know, the way he tells it, he was there as a mediator because he was worried that uh, the guy would get murdered, which would not be a good look for Hitler or anyone else for that matter associated with the Nazi party. They wanted him to, Miklas, to leave peaceably. But what actually happened was he went in there, Miklas said later that actually he felt fear for his life, and so did his wife, because Scott Saini actually grabbed him as if to arrest him. And the, uh, Miklas had a, a presidential guard by the, led by uh, left, someone called Lieutenant Biersack, who testified much the same thing, that, in fact, Scorsini was much more aggressive than he portrayed himself. But nevertheless, the thing ended peaceably, and Miklas could see the way things were going. There was no way out, so uh, he gave in. And I think somewhere in there, you know, Scorsini had done it. He wasn't armed. He himself wasn't armed, though he'd had, uh, you know, soldiers' rifles pointed at him as he came up the stairs to arrest the president. He'd, the overall take from it, as far as the leading Nazis were concerned, Colton Brenner in particular, was he'd, he'd mission accomplished. He'd been a useful pair of hands, and that was stored for later. Footnote in history, but you can begin to see the style. You know, insanely brave, dashes up the stairs, not armed. He's so self-confident that he'll somehow sort the situation out, and he does. He does. Uh, I lost your sound. Let me unmute, sir. You state uh, that in your book. Like, it's really interesting that this is the groundwork for future things of, that he's involved in, being at the center of a thing, uh, kind of bluffing his way into or just manhandling it through sheer, like, moral authority or something like that where shots aren't fired. Self-belief, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that pulls it off. So you see that groundwork leading into World War II, 
where so this is like the first of many. I mean, Scorzani's a remarkable. He's almost like a Zelig or something where he's at pivotal events in World War II, like an observer, like just a, a remarkable historical figure. So where, what happens after the Angelus? Okay, so effectively he, get, he gets married to Emmy Linhart and he has a one, one child, daughter, but on the very day she's born, more or less, in February 1940, he's, he's called up. He's, he's tried to join the, you know, you can imagine, given his political inclinations, he's very keen to fight for his country, for Adolf Hitler and so on. He tries to join the Luftwaffe because this is the romantic art service. It's, it's full of new, you know, leading edge technology. And uh, most of those involved, well, they've only learned to fly. They're very young. They've only learned to fly in the, in, in the recent past. They're usually because they're younger, more ardent Nazis than those in the army. We're going to bear the brunt of the war, of course. Uh, but he's, 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 he's chucked out, in effect. I mean, he's, he must have known when he joined, tried to join the Luftwaffe. He was 31. He was too old for it. And uh, he was too big to fit in the cockpit of an ME-109, which is, this is, it, here, here, you know, going back, this goes back a bit to the Mencio business. Here's Scott Saney, the sort of lone gladiator type, and he loved the idea of being able to get into aerial combat, but it just wasn't for him. So he did the next best thing. He joined up, as I say, more or less the, uh, he, went, he went to serve more or less the day his daughter was born, Valtron, uh, in February 1940. And you had to sort of start, to, he, he, you had to start, in a, um, it's, a, it's a very strange organization, actually, of often SS. It was the armed part of the party, but it had only just come into being, certainly as the Waffen-SS. There were, uh, there were armed units of the SS, and um, they, uh, the, there were, in fact, two regiments before the war broke out, and it had to be quickly expanded. So they were looking for a, a lot of people like Scott Senny, and a lot of professional people actually joined up. It, it, it expanded hugely fast. It wasn't particularly well-disciplined at the beginning because of the massive intake. There were a lot of people who came from the, what was called the Olgemeine SS, which was the general SS, which meant basically that they were snoopers, they were policemen or, or uh, spies in, in terms of their training and usefulness to the Nazis. There were also even... Um, uh, concentration camp guards. Uh, you know the the organisation was that desperate, but to to, to get the numbers to get up to a hundred thousand or so, they'd only been I don't know what they were. They, uh, a couple of thousand or so fully armed, fully trained uh, soldiers at that point. So it was a nascent organisation, but it had lots from his point of view of potential, uh, and it was very unorthodox in its approach to fighting. Uh, he joined a Waffen-SS um, regiment, uh, which became known later on as Duskreich. It was called the SS Division Reich to begin with, which uh, was, it, 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 it eventually operated in Russia. But initially what he was was a, a technical officer, which was seen as a sort of, in terms of the military hierarchy, a cut below being a field commander which I think he aspired to be, but never actually became. Uh, he served um, mostly in tank depots, sort of sorting out armoured vehicles and refitting tanks for the, uh, the, for the armoured uh, SS divisions. He served in France. He did serve 
relatively actively, well, albeit in a rear echelon position in the war with um, Yugoslavia in April 1941, which lasted all of 11 weeks, in which he took a lot of prisoners, but more by luck than judgment, I think. And I think this probably gave him a very miss. The, the war in Yugoslavia was perfect blitzkrieg. Um, uh, Hitler was trying to, uh, as people only realize later, Hitler was trying to protect his his um, his Western flank for the upcoming Operation Barbarossa, the planned invasion of the Soviet Union, despite the fact that Germany was in an alliance with the Soviet Union at the time. So Skorzeny's next post is actually on the uh, in 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 the Reich division, and he's um, riding point in the spearhead. It's called Army Army Group Middle or Center, uh, which attacked um, in after uh, June 1941. It attacked Moscow, and all went very well in the initial weeks. And they got to Minsk, and they got to Smolensk, and they seemed to be in. Um, fighting distance, certainly well before Christmas, and then the weather began to change and the Russians began to change. And he, this is where he actually acquired his first medal, uh, which was the Iron Cross Class Two. He was uh, cited for actually rescuing an armored vehicle in what was called the Yelnia Bridgehead, uh, which was, um, it was, a, the idea was that outside Smolensk, which was putting up a stiff resistance to the Russian, the, sorry, the German advance, the uh, Germans were going to uh, outflank the, uh, the Russians. Skorzeny got into this, um, into this uh, bridgehead and then things started to go disastrously wrong for the Germans. It was partly the, the, the sort of very, very heavy um, uh, storms in November, the worst winter, some said, in 100 years. It was only minus 30 at times. So the whole of the German army, the armoured part of it, certainly was reduced to a crawl. The Luftwaffe couldn't take off, you know, um, fuel froze. Suddenly, the, uh, the, the, um, it turned from a blitzkrieg to a war of attrition. At the same time, Stalin's greatest bluff of all, probably, he pulled 18 divisions from the Eastern Front. So there's no real protection against the Japanese should they attack him. But he, he, he calculated right. And the Russians just proved far superior at winter war. Uh, the Germans were forced to pull back. And it was absolutely horrific for people who were still, well, just to take one instance, fighting in summer uniforms in many cases. In this, uh, in this instance, uh, Scott Saini stuck in the Yelnia bridgehead. Uh, was bombarded all around. Uh, his regiment was uh, not unusual for Waffen SS regiments, which stood their ground. Uh, it, it, it was absolutely pulverized, huge casualties. And he himself was, uh, he was afflicted by two things. One was a shrapnel into the back of his head, which finally saw him taken back to Berlin. But he also had a, a nasty attack of colitis. So actually, he wasn't on the Russian front for that long. He was withdrawn in January 1942. And that meant he was um, back into depot service, sorting out the next new range of uh, panzer tanks for Waffen-SS divisions, Mark IV panzers, Tiger Ones, whatever. Um, and he became very, very depressed. His father, father died about that time. So 1942 was not a good year for him. And uh, he was seriously wondering about what his future was going to be. And then he gets what you might call a phone call the thing that's going to completely change his life. 
Right. And so that changes him from this frontline soldier to kind of the commando uh, commando type person. Could you talk about that transformation and how that happened? Yeah. I mean, I, as you would have gathered by now, he had no special penchant for commando work. He had, he had the temperament, the, uh, uh, in some ways anyway, the, the uh, extreme individualism, the ability to think on his feet for himself, if, if not for the people around him. But he wasn't actually seen as instant commando material. What had happened was that, um, I mean, Germany was now even somewhere, Hitler and Himmler must have been beginning to appreciate that Germany was losing. I mean, after Stalingrad, after um, and, and that summer Kursk, the, the German army was incapable of taking the, the conventional army, the panzer army, the ground attack aircraft, you know, the backbone of Blitzkrieg and the Prussian military tradition of the time was failing. And uh, Hitler had this meeting with Himmler in uh, Berchtesgaden, I think, no, the Birkhoff, in, uh, in, at the end of March 1943, uh, in which it was, the discussion point was really, well, it's time for us to turn to what the Germans called Kleiner Krieg, guerrilla warfare. We'll do anything we can to stop the advance of the Soviet army. Uh, but what are we going to do? Uh, there, was, there was no, I mean, the British have been outstanding at this kind of warfare because for the most, for the last two and a half years or so, basically they've been losing the war. But the Germans did uh, admire uh, some of the things they'd done. They'd had spectacularly uh, successful commando raids like the one on Saint Nazaire. And um, also there's something that came up a lot in Skortsene's um, own assessment of the situation, something called Operation Flipper, which was a November 1941 attack by British commandos, which were ultimately under Lord Mountbatten at the time, combined operations, Laycock as well. Uh, they, they, they tried, what they tried to do was very much a Skortsene type operation. They tried to uh, kill Rommel, in his Benghazi headquarters. Rommel, of course, led the Africa Corps at the time. So they launched the surprise attack in November uh, 1941. It was an amphibious attack because Rommel's headquarters were quite near the coast in North Africa. It failed. It failed abysmally. I mean, the, the leader of the operation, Lieutenant Colonel Keyes, was killed, and the Germans managed to capture um, several of the participants who were wearing German uniforms which was against the rules of war at the time. Come back to that as well. Um, so so they, yeah. what they admired, what he admired was the fact that the, you know, the British get up and go. This asymmetric warfare, it was obviously a pattern of something which could have succeeded. The fact of the matter was Rommel wasn't there at the time. The intelligence was wrong. So they right, so you see yeah. this, you see the Germans looking and seeing what's, what the British are doing, and that gets implemented in... When Italy, right. so so so, so uh, Himmler says to Hitler, in in essence, well, why don't we? You know, the SS has something like that, and the the reason why the SS up to this time hasn't had anything like that is because there's a, basically a deal between Hitler and the top of the Nazi Party with the army, which is essentially Prussian aristocracy and it's elite. They fight the war, they deal with external security and uh, internal security in the form of the uh, RSHA, which, as I said, uh, well, it was led by um, uh, Reinhard Heydrich until he got himself assassinated in Bohemia in 1942, and then by Ernst Kaltenbrunner later on. 
they dealt with internal security in all forms. Most notoriously, of course, uh, Carlton Brunner was in charge, ultimately, of the Gestapo. But there were other repressive forces available. <coughs> so uh, Himmler's, Himmler's point here was, well, we need to develop our own. And um, in fact, there was, um, there was a small uh, um, organization, SS Commando Force of merely two or three hundred troopers, actually mostly NCOs who'd been turned into a unit, um, which was run by something called uh, Ausland SD, which translated means the SS Foreign uh, Intelligence Service run by someone called Walter Schellenberg. And the idea was that uh, resources would be put into this, the forces could be built up, and the SS could have its very own toy. But what, what the, the, the message that went out was, uh, and the one that Otto Skortseni received, was that uh, they were looking for a technical officer, which he certainly was, an engineer, to lead this new force, which he knew nothing about, very good reason that no one else did either. So he applied for the job, and it was mediated by someone called Hans Jutner, who was actually the sort of administrative head of the Waffen-SS. He went for the interview, and miraculously easily, he got the job. Uh, the surprising thing about the job, which had the title uh, leader of uh, SS commanders, but it commanded the... Uh, uh, the, the, the um, <laughs> it only, it only, he only acquired the rank of a captain, which in SS terms was called an SS Hauptsturmführer. He was only a captain, yet he was leader of SS commanders. What did this really mean? Well, he soon found out when he met Schellenberg. Schellenberg was really a spy master. And the organization which um, Scott Saney was going to be leading was called something called AMT-6S. Now, AMT was the name, German bureaucracy here, was the name of the organization. There were seven of these organizations. AMT means department, basically, or division. Uh, seven of these organizations under Kardenbrunner's ultimate authority. AMT-6 was the Foreign Service, and AMT-S was, as uh, Scorsini thought, AMT-Sabotage, in other words, the commando unit. Actually, the S stood for Schuller. What... Um, what uh, Schellenberg was doing was he was trying to recruit someone who'd straddle the two things. He'd helped to recruit spies, but he'd also run a sort of part-time commando outfit. And this was not what Scorsini wanted at all. He wanted action. He was, you know, the, the incarnate assault force type, you know, the man of action. And, it, and he was so depressed by this that um, he talked to his friend, Carl Raddle, whom he co-opted as his adjutant, even though he's only one rank below him as a lieutenant, SS lieutenant. Um, uh, he, he talked to him and said, well, uh, you know, this is, this is really awful. I hate Schellenberg. He's such a sort of suave smoothie. And uh, he's, he's forcing me to run a spy network. I'm not fitted for that at all. Where are all these commanders? There was a small commander force, as I said. It had actually been put together from scratch by Schellenberg about a year previously. It was commanded by a Dutch officer, SS officer called Van Bessen. And it, its original purpose was, in fact, uh, an aborted campaign 
to counter-invade Ireland. When America came into the war, there was a real fear in Nazi Germany that uh, neutral Ireland, which of course was very important because it wasn't that neutral, it was Nazi-leaning and they allowed Nazi U-boats to take, you know, they, they had um, access not to the ports, but they could lurk about outside. So the idea was that this force would actually help with a sort of coup de main. And in fact, it was attached, uh, it had IRA contacts, uh, but it never happened. Operation Osprey, I believe it was called. So this was the colonel force that Scott Saney was given. He was given no real uh, brief on what he was supposed to do. I mean, Carlton Brunner personally wasn't remotely interested in commanders or what they could do. He was all about state repression. And uh, he just simply said to Scott Sony when they had an interview, well, you know, just get on with it. And Scott Sony said, well, get on with what exactly? I mean, Sheldon both seems to want me to run a, sky, a, a, a spy school, and uh, I'm not planning to do that. So <laughs> it's, it's as crude as this. Carlton Brunner said, well, you know, study the British. They seem to know what they're doing. And that's what he did. Right. That's and I mean, it was pretty fascinating. Like, he, they ran tons of operations. There were just so many operations for somebody who didn't start. I mean, they were Operation Peter. There's all, and he was just involved in so many things. Can you talk about how the Mussolini situation happened and how that uh, added to Scorzini's fame? Yeah. Well, when Scott Saini joined the organization, Schellenberg was running an operation in, um, in Persia, as it was then called, really. And uh, this was immensely important for the Allies because it was essentially a railroad for all sorts of supplies coming on stream from 1942 onwards when, of course, the, the, um, the Americans were in the war, sending all their sort of Sherman tanks, planes and um, jeeps up to the Russians via uh, the Gulf of Persia. So the, the idea was that the uh, Germans would attempt to ambush this rail, uh, this railway by uh, supplying tribesmen in the south of, uh, of, 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 of what's now Iran. Um, Scott Sony had little to do with this. He, he, he acted as a recruitment agency. And although it was a good idea, uh, it was badly run. I mean, the, the SS were not the right, let's say they weren't, hadn't got the right psychological frame of mind to mount such an operation. They didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, it looked like everything was going into a dead end. And then the Mussolini event happens. And it's an existential emergency for the Nazi state, the Third Reich. Uh, and for this reason, uh, Mussolini had been losing the war. The Allies had uh, invaded, successfully invaded Sicily. They were known to be about to create a bridgehead. It turned out to be Salerno in, in mainland Italy. The fascist council, which nominally underpins uh, uh, Mussolini's absolute rule, um, managed to put through a vote of no confidence, effectively deposing him. And then the king of Italy, Victor Emmanuel III, was actually a very powerful figure behind the scenes, uh, staged a coup d'etat. He put someone called Marshal Badoglio, Pietro Badoglio, in charge, and he tried to sue for peace with the Allies. Now, this wasn't going to wash in itself because back in early 43, I think January 43, there was an accord in Casablanca between Roosevelt and Churchill, which effectively said that there is going to be no, it's unconditional surrender. Under no circumstances will 
Germany or any of its allies be able to put down conditions if they surrender. But the King and Badoglio thought, well, look, if we use Mussolini as a hostage, then maybe we can get terms. And, and so they, they basically they kidnapped him and moved him around the, the country with the help of uh, the uh, Italian military uh, secret service, SIM. Uh, and he was guarded by Carabinieri, and, th- and there were three or four staging posts for this. It was it was quite cleverly done, but Hitler was absolutely determined to get him back. There was a sentimental side, surprising to hear anything said about Hitler's sentimentality, but there was a sentimental side to this. I mean, uh, Mussolini had been his mentor in a way, the first fascist leader, uh, first effective fascist leader anyway. Uh, but mostly it was a strategic consideration because, the, you know, the, the Italians, they hadn't exactly had a glorious um, record in the war, but there were an awful lot of garrison troops um, all over the Balkans, allowing a lot more German troops to be deployed in the Eastern War, which was going badly. So the last thing Hitler wanted was to actually have to occupy Italy with lots of troops he couldn't afford probably against a very hostile backdrop. But he couldn't leave it as a vacuum either because it would be an easy win for the Allies. There'd be no resistance, Rome would fall, then they'd roll up the peninsula. So somehow he had to find Mussolini and he had to get Mussolini back alive and install him in a new fascist republic, which is eventually what he did. The problem was no one could find him for about between, I think it was July the 26th, and uh, the beginning of September, there were some leads, some false, some good, but they didn't actually find out for sure where he was until the beginning of September 1943. And what happened when they found out where he was? Like, I think initially he was taken to an island south of Sardinia. So they had him and they were moving around. And Scorzani and these other intel characters were trying to really find exactly where he was, right? Okay. So this is the turning point in Scott Sainer's career. This is where the leader of SS commanders really becomes important and there's no looking back afterwards. But how does he get there? What happens is one day he's in the Hotel Eden in, uh, in Berlin because he hasn't really got very much to do, drinking with a former uh, university professor, I believe, and he gets a call from his secretary at a place, from a place called Friedenthal, which was east of Berlin, which is where they were set up. That was their commando army camp and it's to say look you better get yourself on a plane it's, I've been trying to you know I've been trying to reach you for hours I don't know what you're doing but you need to get on a plane straight away to the the Wolfschanze which is Hitler's lair the wolf's lair in eastern Prussia because the Fuhrer wants to see you and you can imagine the reaction he gets on to, he gets on the phone to his adjutant so can I could have a clean set of clothes for this uh, but first of all I have another drink <laughs> drink is a big part of this Anyway, he gets on the plane and uh, it's one of these Junker Ju-52. It's a very basic uh, passenger plane, actually, but it's got a VIP lounge. So he sort of amply fuels himself with more brandy on the way. This three-hour flight to eastern Prussia lands there. He's escorted in a black Mercedes car through all the defense and placements. And he finally arrives at something towards the end of the day. He arrives in something called the Tea Room where he's invited to uh, wait for Adolf Hitler to turn up, who, you know, like most heads of state, never turns up early. And uh, he gets a bit irritated with Hitler's, uh, it's not very wise really, but then he's been drinking Hitler's uh, uh, adjutant, who's a, a man called Kutcher. 
Uh, and, and because this man fails to pronounce his name correctly, he's vain like that. It's Skorzeny. I think Skorzeny is how most people, probably most Germans, pronounced it when not educated. Um, so Skorzeny. Uh, anyway, eventually he finds himself, um, he's hauled into a room with, with five others, I think it is. And there are various special forces types, some from the Luftwaffe, maybe one from another Waffen-SS unit and so on and so forth. Uh, and into the room comes Adolf Hitler. Nothing's been explained. And Hitler starts asking these strange questions. Skorzeny is at the bottom of the row because he's the most junior. He's only a captain. Some of them are sort of majors and lieutenant colonels. And uh, Hitler sort of starts asking them strange questions about um, Italy. And they come back with formulaic answers. They know there's a problem down there, but they don't know that Mussolini's been um, heisted. Um, and and Scorzini had been down there like for his... Yes. Uh, like he yeah. traveled well, down there with his wife or something. starts with his first wife on their honeymoon, and he had been back later. He liked Italy. Uh, he had been to precisely the place it turned out that, uh, or, or very close to the place where, where Mussolini was finally held captive. But I'll come to that in a minute in the uh, Abruzzi. Um, so uh, Hitler sort of goes down the line and he comes to Scorzini and sort of Scorzini stammers, well, you know, what do I think about Italy? Um, well, I've been there. I know quite a bit about it. That ticks a box for a start, it turns out. Um, so you could talk about this sort of the, 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 the uh, topography of Italy. But he said, you know, the thing about me and Italy is I'm an Austrian. And Hitler pricks up his ears because what that really means is it's a coded message. It's going back to the Treaty of Versailles or Saint-Germain. And Austria, and don't forget, is Hitler, of course, just to emphasize the point, is himself an Austrian. Um, <clears throat> uh, Austria lost a lot of territory to in the Tyrol to Italy. That's one of the, Italy was one of the victors. And um, there's something like, I don't know, 200,000 Germans living in Italy. And, and Volksdeutsch, uh, I think yeah. you call it Volksdeutsch. Volksdeutsch, yes, yes, essentially ethnic Germans. And uh, Hitler had uh, voiced his opinion on this in the past, but because of his close association with um, Mussolini, he hadn't wished to act, whereas he had acted in places like Romania, which had an awful lot of Hungarians, for example. Um, and, and Volksdeutsch down there as well, which had been moved back into German areas of uh, influence within the Reich. Anyway, so that, that sort of seems to trigger something. We don't know exactly why Hitler uh, chose Scorsini, but basically he said, right, everyone else can go. You're the man for me. And then he explained, everyone else went out of the room. Then he explained in a one-to-one -to, -one to Scorsini exactly what was going on. That he, was, he, had to get, he was going to send Scorsini out as his personal emissary. Um, and they had to get back Mussolini at all costs, and then he explained why. Now, going on around this was a power play, because the SS, this is Schellenberg and Kaltenbrunn and, of course, Himmler, they were all at the Wolfschanz, coincidentally enough, at this point. They knew something big was going on, and they just got their man embedded into a military operation. And what they were trying to do, obviously, it was highly important that they, that, that they succeed, but they were trying to sort of take ownership, if you like, of the raid. Because if they could rescue Mussolini, 
then it was one up against the, for example, the conventional military um, secret service, the Abwehr, which was much bigger, but in the view of the SS, um, incompetently run by Admiral Canaris. So there's a lot of um, competition behind the scenes. And they were uh, gratified that their man, because they had no control over this, had actually won, if you like, the beauty competition. So the next thing was to send him. To, he was he was put under the command of someone called Kurt Student, who was the, really the foremost airborne troops expert in in the um, in the uh, in the in the German army or the German Luftwaffe, in fact. Uh, and uh, he sent nominally he was in the Luftwaffe. He was uh, obliged to wear uh, a Luftwaffe uniform during the operation because going strutting around an SS officer might send out the wrong signal to the Italians. They know something was up, and it wasn't very nice. Uh, so he's he's got this access to the leader of the uh, of the expedition. Uh, he's he's acting as his adjutant. In fact, behind the scenes, Otto Skorzeny is able to tap into uh, Ausland SD, the um, the the intelligence, uh, the the foreign intelligence service of the SS, and it proves much more efficient than any of the other intelligence services, which are trying to establish the same thing. Where exactly has Mussolini been put? And at the beginning of September, just as things are really deteriorating on the war front and uh, uh, Victor Emmanuel Badoglio can't spit it out much longer. The Americans are losing patience and they declare that Italy has in fact surrendered, which is of course a trigger sign for the Germans to invade because they don't want a vacuum. Bingo, uh, the police attache attached to the German embassy in Rome, who's called Herbert Kaplan, discovers exactly where he is. And he's up a mountain in the Abruzzi. It's in fact at a ski resort. It's about 2,200 meters up, and the only way to get to it is apparently by a cable car, because that it still exists actually. But the um, nowadays there's a road as well. In those days, there was just a cable car from the nearest village below, which is called a Sergi. And so, uh, Scorsini is able to take some of the credit for this because he's the one who's been scurrying around uh, looking for information. He's been pushing it all the time. Student is a man who's quite worried by his other duties. He's he's not a political man at all. He lets Scorsini do a lot of the talking at the Wolfschanzer because he's a much better presenter. Um, and which somehow gives the impression that well, Scorsini is in charge, even though he's not. Uh, and Scorsini has, after all, managed to be, he was, he's, he's the one with the uh, bang on information, thanks to his intelligence service. So Scorsini's uh, student, and his student is in Scorsini's debt, in a sense. Also, he's very worried about this operation because it's wasting his time as a soldier. It's a political issue, as far as he's concerned, and a minor one, too. I mean, he's got he's got nothing invested in Mussolini personally. What he's worried about is he knows that in a couple of days' time he's going to be involved in the most almighty fight with Italian forces over keeping Rome in German hands. And that's exactly what happens. So there's a picture here building up. Scorsini is able to move into, the, into a vacuum, if you like. But the question now, and, and claim some of the credit, the question now is how are they actually going to get hold of their man? And it's pretty obvious that, well, there are three ways of doing it. There's a ground attack uh, and then two forms of airborne attack. You can send in um, paratroopers, you know, parachutists, 
or you can send them in by glider, paratroopers by glider. Uh, and the problem with parachutists, let's uh, dismiss this uh, straight away, is it had never been done at that kind of altitude. They'd be blown all over the place. There's no accuracy. Gliders, pretty dangerous too. Uh, especially if we didn't set off first thing in the morning because of the thermals. But anyway, Scott Saney was later to claim that he'd foreseen all this and, um, you know, the only way to do it was a combined operation. A ground force would attack a searchy, overpower the uh, Carabinieri guards at the bottom, take command of the cable car. But while they were doing this, the glider force of about 100 men, 10 gliders it turned out, originally 12, would land on the, on the mountain and uh, storm this hotel and rescue Mussolini. Then they, they join forces. Now, there's a huge amount of controversy after the war, I say, rather than during it, because with Hitler around, no one wanted to argue about who gets first dibs, the laurels for, the, for, the, for, the, for, for what turned out to be um, a dangerous but very successful mission. Um, Scott Saney, um, well, he, he, he claimed later on to have been actually involved in the planning of the expedition. This is absolutely absurd. He had no knowledge of airborne tactics at that time at all. He'd been an infantry soldier, effectively. It was someone called Major Moores. He had a lot of experience. He'd been involved in a... There was a famous um, uh, Luftwaffe commando raid in called, a fortress called Eben Emil in the opening stages of the German invasion of Belgium in 1940, which was masterminded. It took about six months, actually, to mastermind it, the planning for it. It was a, it was a sort of prototype of its kind. Um, that had been done with gliders, and uh, there was a similar operation in Crete, less successful, but the Germans did prevail in, in 1941. And he'd been involved in both of these. He'd also um, carried out similar operations in the Soviet Union. Immensely experienced, but his problem was that he, uh, he had a dodgy political record. He'd let it be known it was either defeatist talk or he wasn't too keen on the Nazis. So he wasn't the obvious hero everyone was looking for. Nevertheless, he, 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 he did all the groundwork on it. And he decided the operation, it was more sound for him to lead the ground force, which was actually bigger, about 250 men in armored trucks and so on, up to a surgery. This left, um, this left Scorsini in an interesting position. He wangled his way, persuaded student to let him go with the glider force. There were about 15 SS men. Actually, originally there were 50 brought in in the operation, but only 15 participated in the actual glider landing. Most of the people in the gliders were Luftwaffe assault paratroopers. And the way it was supposed to pan out, and students said this afterwards in his memoirs, you know, essentially um, Scott Saini, his view, was just a sort of police escort. He was, he was there to sort of take charge once the Luftwaffe had, uh, shall we say, relieved Mussolini, uh, relieved the Italians of Mussolini, supposed to take him back to Berlin, but that was, that was about it, really. Uh, but it didn't work out like that, um, because what happened was that... Um, the 10 gliders, which finally turned up in southern France that day, they were late. They were late taking off about one o'clock, I believe, which made it even more of a dangerous um, expedition. Well, problem, morale probably wasn't helped by a so-called pep talk the student gave, and he just gave it from the shoulder. And he said, look, you know, there are going to be a lot of casualties in this. 
80% casualties. Nothing like this has been tried before. We've had almost no time to put this together, but that's the way, that's, the, that's what the Führer wants, that's the way it's going to be. So off you go. What they were going, the, the, <clears throat> the um, German glider tactics involved, and this is quite important, in uh, the gliders um, in strings of three, and the first three had the supposedly the commander of the uh, Luftwaffe ground troops, um, the paratroopers, uh, commanded by someone called Berlepsch von Berlepsch, who's a lieutenant. And uh, in the number four, that is the beginning of the next what were called Ketty, the next uh, triad of gliders, the Scorsini with this Italian general that he captured because they thought it would be a good bit of substitution. I'll come to that in a minute. And in the glider behind him was Carl Radley's his adjutant, and lots of other uh, SS um, paratroopers. Well, they weren't really paratroopers. They were simply troops <coughs> who um, knew so much about uh, flying in gliders that they actually had a hearty breakfast beforehand with uh, dismal results. They were that inexperienced and amateurish in a way. So anyway, what's happened is that Scorsini, in part of his intelligence gathering, no one actually knew what they were, was going to confront them when they got to, you know, 2,200 feet. What exactly were they landing on? Scorsini had been up in a, in a Heinkel bomber uh, earlier on, and he'd, he'd, he'd done some intelligence work. The uh, Luftwaffe intelligence officer had fallen out with him because the stereoscopic camera in the plane had failed. This would have given high resolution photographs of the landing ground. It failed. So this guy, Langut, whose name was, said, well, let's return. Maybe mission unaccomplished. We're just going to have to manage somehow. But Scorsini insisted in taking pictures with a less sophisticated camera in, in very difficult conditions. And he got something which was developed. And it was a bit like, you know, picture of lunar craters or something it was very indistinct about four inches by four inches when they developed it but this was the only plan they had of a, a landing zone and it, as scott saney thought it might be a sort of gentle ski slope it's nothing of the sort it's very rocky anyway um what happens is that as the colliders are climbing and going towards their target the first three containing uh, the most important elements of luftwaffe force are forced to turn and re-enter the uh, glider path because they haven't gained enough height over over the, uh, the, the, the there are sort of hills around Tivoli, <clears throat> and uh, so the second group of three that's number four glider containing Scorsini are now in the lead. So by a chance, by happenstance, Scorsini uh, is the first to land in his glider, and they actually land quite well. I mean, the, 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 there's some discussion as to how much influence Scorsini had over the landing, whether you could actually talk to the pilot through the partition. But anyway, it was said later in general staff reports that Scorsini had bullied the pilot, making him make a crash landing when he was actually specifically told not to. They landed without too much damage anyway. And he, they, you know, the, the SS um, troopers get out very shaken they've been airsick and so on, stumble around, not having a clue what they're doing, really. Then the second, uh, the, the, the second um, uh, glider lands, and the commander in that, the SS commander in that, manages to break his leg. So it, it's all a bit of a pantomime at first. They kick down a door at the side of the, um, of the, uh, of, of the hotel, 
but it's not actually an entry to the hotel at all. It's it's a dead end, and it's just got a radio operator in it. So Scorsoni gets out his his Luca or whatever, and sort of smashes the radio. <laughs> then they're looking for Mussolini, and they go bound round the back. There's still no one else in sight. None of the other uh, Luftwaffe gliders have turned up yet. And then he has his chance. He get he sees his chance. He comes round the back, round to the front, and there's. There's Mussolini peering out of the first floor window, saying, "I'm, I'm here, I'm here," you know, um, <clears throat> and uh, that's it, really. Without more ado, just as the other uh, gliders are landing, these people who should actually be taking command of the operation, Scott Cini is make, makes a sort of heroic uh, uh, dash through the doors. He doesn't meet any resistance up to the first floor uh, room where Mussolini's being held, and basically takes over. He does it by bluff. He has said to his troops, the safety catch is on, no firing. We've got to do this by stealth. And that's what happens. All right, so he kind of he kind of imposes the same thing he did back in Vienna. So it's Correct. the same type of thing, no shooting. I'm going to take care no of this. So he yeah. handles it, and he's the one right. who leaves with Mussolini too, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's lucky that Mussolini, Mussolini's been watching the gliders through the window come down thinking, oh, Hitler's come for me after all. Thank God for that. And impetuously, sort of get breaks away from the guard in the room, and he opens the window and signals to Scott Senny, and they say all sorts of things together. But I knew that, you know, I knew Hitler wouldn't forsake me, and um, and uh, you know, Scott Senny says, "No, no, he's uh, I'm here to rescue you and take you back." So it looks like he's sealed up. You know, Berlepsch arrives about that time and secures the, uh, the the perimeters of the of the hotel and so on and so forth. They they disarm all the uh, Italian guards, there are about 120 of them. I mean, any you have to say that it was insanely brave of Scott Senni. He was very lucky too, but he could have been shot at any time. It, technically, Italy was now in a state of war with Germany. So they've been... Right, so involved. they took uh, Mussolini and installed him at Salo, right? And Correct. created kind of like a fascist rump state. Fascist, yes, it gave a, it gave a political uh, fig leaf for at least half of Italy. Uh, which meant that there didn't have to be quite so many um, occupying German troops, although there were quite a few around, just to make sure. So, you know, the operation, I would say the operation, in terms of its historical significance, it didn't change the outcome of the Second World War, of course, but it did slightly change its course. Because what could have happened, as I said earlier, was that the Allies could have occupied a vacuum. If the, if, 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 if the King and Badoglio had had their way, and there'd been a show, you know, Mussolini had been passed over, there'd been a show trial, I think the Allies might have been grateful enough and they'd open their doors fully before the Germans could occupy the country. Uh, the war in Italy might have been very different to what it was. Right. taken two years. To... But it was like that all throughout the Third Reich. There was problems that involved Hungary. So Scorsini gets set in there. I mean, it's really incredible. So there, I mean, this, these operations that he did lengthened the duration of World War II. At least he helped, at least in some of them, to... Uh, yeah, he, I, would, I would say that Operation Ica, as it was called, was by far the most important operation he participated in, it, and it did have a material effect on the outcome of the war. And what I'd also say is, whilst a lot of other people were clearly involved in the success of the operation, um, you know, he did a lot of the legwork. He um, reinforced, shall we say, Stuart's commitment to get Mussolini out. And, uh, of course, he was the one who, um, when the film cameras came out, because uh, the, the, even on a dangerous mission like this, <laughs> they had to 
uh, commando company propaganda unit with them. There's a journalist and a cameraman and so on and so forth coming up um, from 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 below. So he was on film, and this made him look like a superhero. Right. It was like a propaganda like a win for the more, Volker Greg, right? right? In Goebbels, too. Small man we're, 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 uh, without a sort of charismatic personality. He was just very good at his job. Scott Saini, a man with a moustache, stood out like a Hollywood film star. And that, and that, of course, went, you know, it went out on uh, um, uh, out to all German cinemas. Die Wochenschau was the weekly newsreel. That was how most Germans got their news. Of course, it was carefully manicured by Goebbels, the propaganda ministry, but it, it really made him look like a superhero. So, and it was difficult for anyone else to say, oh, yes, but we did this and we did that. And Hitler was convinced it was all about Scorsini. He got his writ across, which, which is the, need I explain that, the writ across? Yeah, it, sure. It was the benchmark of uh, German military achievement at the time. There were higher forms of writ across, but the basic writ across was something like a Victoria Cross, a little below it, I'd say, in status. But there are about, by the end of the war, about 8,000 holders, I seem to remember. So he got his writ across, which was uh, a coming of age for him. And um, then he didn't really have to, uh, he really didn't have to look back. I mean, uh, Hitler wanted to give him anything. Whenever Hitler had a problem, something that needed to be shut down, these other operations he referred to, Scott Saini was often the man first chosen to accomplish the task. Right. So he was involved in, he was involved in the Stauffenberg plot, or he was there in Berlin. Then he was involved in, what was it, uh, the operation in, like I said, in Hungary. Then Grief, which the Americans called Battle of the Bulge, he was involved with. Correct. I mean, all these different things. Very important. And then all the way to the Eastern Front again. Really just a uh, important figure for many reasons. And then, I mean, those are all covered in your book. He gets arrested and he spends two years in jail. Well, some of his co compatriots uh, didn't make it. He made it through. So, uh, you know, Ernst uh, Kaltenberger got hung or shot. I don't know what happened to him, but it one of his fellow officers. But for some reason, he speeds through. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, um, what happened was that... Um, I need to say something at least about it's a very complicated uh, operation, Operation Grief. But if you've seen the film Battle of the Bulge, you'll know that those um, at the, the, the beginning of the uh, German campaign, Hitler's last throw, really, uh, there is a company of uh, German commanders dressed as US servicemen, armed as US servicemen with US documents authentic fakes, if you like, driving U.S. Jeeps. And they, they power behind the American lines with the panzers behind them. And the idea is to sow a lot of discord among the Americans, which they actually succeeded in doing. It, it, it's uh, uh, complicated and in some ways a rather distressing story because a lot of them got killed. Um, but um, it was a clever ploy. And it, Scott Saini and his officers made they it's impossible to keep a secret opera, uh, operation of that size completely um, off the books. Rumors were going to get out. They might get through to Allied intelligence. So what they quite cleverly did was they allowed the rumors to multiply about what the objective of this this 
this, um, it was called Panzer Brigade 150, uh, which involved fake um, uh, allied weapons, like converted panzers. There was some genuine captured stuff, but it's very difficult to get by that stage of the war, which Germany had been losing quite some time. It was very difficult to haul back um, the right kind of materiel. So the Germans sort of built their own, really. Uh, painted a few German Ford trucks in American colors, that sort of thing, um, turned uh, German tanks into what looked like uh, Shermans, and so on and so forth. And the, the, the idea behind it was that uh, the, the Jeep company, where uh, supposedly everyone on board spoke fluent English with an American accent, far from the case, in fact, would go and sow discord behind the American lines. The idea was that uh, the Germans had to get from their uh, border in the Eiffel Forest, quite near Cologne, to the Meurs bridges, the tanks force anyway, had to get there within four days. And then they would go as far as Antwerp in seven days. They cut off the 21st British Army and a large part of the American army up there, and it'd be another Dunkirk. That's what Hitler thought. It was crazy, but that's what he thought. And, it, and, and they would capture munitions and um, petrol dumps, which is very important because tanks crawl along. You know, they can uh, consume um, a, 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 you know, a massive amount of petrol and diesel. So they needed to, by that time of the war, they needed to capture stuff as they went along. Uh, and and um, so Scorsini was in charge of this fast mechanized force, but the interesting part of it was really the uh, commando company of jeeps, some of whom got captured. And they were full of all these rumors, but they didn't know what, which ones were correct. And one among them was this idea that uh, the real purpose of the operation was, yes, a breakthrough. But Scorsini and his commanders were going to jeep their way to Paris under the guise of being American soldiers. And then they were going to kidnap the Supreme Allied Commander, General Eisenhower. Yeah. Uh, this was something that was not forgotten and not appreciated because it made an idiot of the American security detail. Eisenhower was pinned down for over a week from the middle of December onwards, just when he should have been directing operations in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but nevertheless, they didn't forget it. And uh, payback time came somewhat later. Scott Saney eventually surrenders uh, around about 16th of May, 1945. It was dead. He's in the Austrian mountains, but he realizes a guerrilla war is going to be hopeless. The Americans, uh, they make some mistakes with him, actually, because, I mean, as you will see from now, he's, he, by now, he's, he's, he's a very mediagenic, charismatic kind of person. And they, it's a high-profile arrest in which he's... Um, not exactly beaten up, but he's brutalized a bit. And there are the media's around, flashbulbs pop. So he's he's sort of turned himself into a bit of a martyr already. And then comes his trial about two years later. This is not unusual, by the way. The, the Allies uh, spent quite a long time, especially the Americans, who are slow but patient, spent quite a long time interrogating suspect officers. No, most officers, including uh, Wehrmacht officers, non-Mothen SS officers, and time in jail, but most hadn't committed uh, verifiable war crimes. The question was, had Scorsini committed a war crime? And the answer is, technically, maybe. Because what he'd done with this Jeep commando unit was he'd broken some... The only, it's, it's a very strange thing, because the war in the East was fought absolutely brutally, without any rules, including dressing up in each other's uniforms all the time firing on each other, 
while in these uniforms. Uh, Russia didn't adhere to the Geneva Convention, for example. But on the, in the West, it was fought in a almost more gentlemanly manner. Of course, there were atrocities. Of course, there were. But uh, the German generals, as well as the Allied ones, liked to fight by the book. And the book was something called the 19, 1907 Hague Convention. And in it was this Article 23, which said basically that, you know, okay, ruses, what we would call uh, false flag operations today, ruses, camouflage operations were allowed in war. But here's the absurdity of it. <laughs> you had to, reflecting a more chivalrous age, I think. When you, when you engage the enemy, you had to rip off your false uniform to display who you were, and only then could you fire at them. And the question was, had these commando company uh, troops in their jeeps, had they at any time actually fired uh, on the Americans without alerting them? Because if so, they could be technically arrested as spies and shot. And that's what happened to about 15 of them. Right. right, so they do get shot, and there was also the massacre at Malmedy, I think, yes. was something that they were trying to pin yes. on him, too. Well, there's a lot of detail you can go into with this, but essentially, the man who was the prosecutor in, in what's uh, in Scott Saney's uh, war trial in Dachau in 1947, who was called uh, Abraham Rosenfeld, uh, he had tried to nail Scott Saney previously, together with the whole of the, well, the senior part of what was called Kampfgruppe Piper, which was undoubtedly in some way responsible for the death of 85 servicemen, they said more of the time, 85. This was, this, was, this was during a push some days into the operation, which at one time looks as if it might be quite successful. And there's no rhyme or reason why this massacre happened. The American unit was disarmed and some Boffin SS troops. We, never, we don't know to this day exactly who was responsible, but the army command led by, um, by, um, uh, by uh, Jochen Piper, who was a very sort of dynamic, if ruthless uh, tank commander, uh, was held responsible because they'd issued orders sort of saying, take no prisoners, basically, and some often SS soldiers are taking it seriously. The question was, was Scott Saney, who was sort of in the area at the time, but not in the area, was he also responsible? Had he also issued similar orders, take no prisoners, just shoot them, regardless of who they are, unless they have some asset value, information. Uh, and actually, I mean, when I went through the uh, the detail uh, of it, it was clear, in fact, that this was a put-up job, that Scott Saney had absolutely nothing to do with the Malmedy ma massacre. He was nowhere near at the time. The, 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 there was one reconnaissance jeep that was that happened in the area of Malmedy by mistake about three hours after the massacre happened on the 17th of December, I think it was, 1944. <clears throat> what, what, what was going on was, uh, it was payback time, really, for, uh, from Rosenfeld's point of view. These court martials, they were administered, as the name suggests, under military law, not civil law. You could do all sorts of things, you could, if you were Rosenfeld, anyway. You could, um, you could stage manage the evidence. You could uh, beat evidence, if you like, out of prisoners, because no one's going to stop you, you know, hood them, beat them, uh, starve them, all sorts of things. Obviously, you couldn't uh, kill them. Uh, to get the kind of outcome you wanted, because in the courtroom, the court was made up largely of these sort of field colonel, lieutenant colonel types. We weren't actually lawyers at all. Rosenfeld was a professional lawyer, so he knew what he wanted. And he couldn't get Scott Saney in on the Malmedy 
uh, trial the previous year because he was actually ill. He had another bout of colitis. And he had, a, had to have his gallbladder um, operated on at the time. So this is payback time. So that's why the, the charge was appended. Um, there's another technical reason why uh, Rosenfeld did it, but I, I won't go into that now. Uh, that was the, that was the biggest thing um, held, held against him initially because there was no witness who turned up in time. The charge had to be dropped. But the issue of whether um, Scorsini's commando company troops had fired without warning while in American uniform stuck for a lot longer. But eventually he had a very good lawyer called uh, Robert uh, D. Durst, who's from Nassari, I think. Uh, Springfield Massari, uh, and uh, he was backed up by someone who actually did have experience of criminal trials, a criminal trial lawyer, lawyer I think he'd been a, in the DA's office in San Francisco, someone called Donald McClure, a good team. And they learned from the mistakes of the previous trial, where basically people have been able to proffer their own defences. Um, and what happened was that, you know, all the German lawyers suggested a cutthroat defense. So everyone blamed everyone else and everyone, all the defendants went down. Some were condemned to death, although that was reprieved. Some, you know, to as little as 10 years. So this, this was not a good outcome. And Durst could see that the way to, to get through this trial was to impose a single narrative on what actually happened and choose a leader. And Scott Saini was the obvious leader. There were 10 defendants altogether in this trial. So he was selected as their spokesman. So he had quite a harrowing time being cross-examined, and he seems to have performed quite well under pressure. But he was sort of stage managed by um, Durst. And what 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 uh, Durst did, and this was almost an accident, but not quite. He he realised that you couldn't really get away with this charge that easily, but you could almost surf it by pointing out, if you can find the evidence, that the Allies had done just the same thing. Right. You know, the 19, 1907 convention was, was put together at a time when there weren't tanks, airplanes, or indeed really commandos in the modern sense of the word. And, um, and you know, it was out of date, and the British and Americans had done similar things. Hitler was convinced this was the justification for Scorsini's type of undercover operation in the first place, that the Americans had done just the same at Aachen, which was the first city in Germany to fall in uh, September, I think it was, um, 1944. In fact, there was an OSS unit that had uh, um, cloaked itself in German uniform and shot at German machine gun posts. It subsequently emerged, so there was some justification. Uh, <clears throat> so what um, Durst, the defense lawyer, did was he found this, this man called uh, Tommy Yo Thomas, Wing Commander Tommy, was Tommy uh, Yo Thomas, who was uh, a war hero, a British war hero, uh, who had um, assisted in an operation called Asymptote in 1944. It was, the idea was to wear German uniforms. They're actually SD uniforms, not military ones, but it didn't matter. Um, the operation didn't come off. It was a bit theoretical, but basically in the witness box, um, Yo Thomas was very sympathetic to Scorsini's position. And when asked by uh, the defense counsel what he would have done if the operation had gone ahead and they'd been you know, challenged by German sentries, so they were trying to rescue a leading member of the French resistance in, in Rennes, uh, he said, well, we would have bumped them off. No question. We'd have just shot them and disappeared with our, with, with, with our, with our, with our uh, prisoner. So that, that, 
it, it wasn't very good, le- it, you know, it was a legal argument. It didn't hold up very well, but it made a huge impression on the judges. And everyone, there were, there were other aspects of this trial, of course, but everyone uh, that he was, uni- they were all, all the defendants were unanimous. Yeah, you know, absolutely quitted, right? Stuart, we're at almost like an hour and a half. Oh my! I God. mean, there's a lot more in this book. I mean, he had 25 years of life after World War II with all kinds yes. of shenanigans and uh, intrigue and subterfuge. I mean, it, his life was really. He had an incredible life. I mean, it really just there's no other way to say it. I mean, not, he devil's disciple. I think is fitting. Not really. Um, you know, he wasn't a saint for by any stretch of the imagination. But the fact that he skirted out of so many uh, predicaments is really something else. Where's the best place for people to get this book, Otto Skorskini, The Devil's Disciple? Amazon. Easily available on Amazon. Amazon. No and and do you you have a website or uh, Twitter or, or social media? I have media a Twitter website? account. Uh, there is uh, something called Stuart Smith's blog which has a few pieces of journalism attached to it. It was partly promotional material, but it's factually based, which would probably give you other aspects of Scorsini. I mean, uh, one thing I did was I looked at um, the influence Scorsini had on uh, one of um, Ian Fleming's James Bond novels, Moonraker. You'll find that he plays a part in that, in uh, that Drax, the, uh, the villain, is in some ways based on Scott Cerny. I didn't know um, that. Wow, that's interesting. I need you to read that. <laughs> it's quite interesting, but just a bit of a curio, really. It is. Well, there are other characters. Fleming borrowed from Crowley, too. Alistair Crowley was his first one, Le Schiff. So he probably yeah. just found uh, sinister-type characters and, and integrated them in his novels. But this was a true story, and an this excellent, a- very well-read book, very, uh, re- very thoroughly researched, too. So... Thanks so much for your time, Stuart. Again, the title of the book is Otto Skorzeny, The Devil's Disciple, and the author is Stuart Smith. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much indeed. All right, stay there. Hold on.